The Café Chronicles Bumper Christmas Annual 2018 by Daniel Ruiz Tyson. It's mid-afternoon as I arrive in the café. Phil Collins, the small waitress with the magnificent upright posture of a centaur, and these days sporting an emerging and rather impressive malon streak at the front of her brown side-parted curly hair, climbs up a stepladder to straighten a silver star hanging from the ceiling in the centre of the cafe. The place is teeming with regulars with whom I've had sporadic greetings over the years. Among them is Argentina 78, a 50-something northern softly spoken male, swarthy and prone to five o'clock shadow. In the summer, he thinks nothing of coming into the cafe in the tiniest of retro sports shorts that rival the infamously tiny shorts of Argentina's 1978 World Cup winning team, long regarded by many football historians as perhaps the smallest football shorts the game has ever seen. Today, Argentina 78 is sat at a single-seater over by the retractable doors, his winter coat done up. If the windows on these retractable doors were double glazed, the cafe would be a much warmer place in winter. Looking a touch haggard, with dark smudges under his eyes, Argentina 78 is preoccupied with his phone, ignoring the book on his table. I shake his hand on the move, keeping my greeting brief, making sure it doesn't escalate into small talk as I nab my long-favoured table in the corner by the loos. Throwing my winter coat over the chair to secure my table, I have a quick glance at the pastries behind the counter. Christmas Eve here is the one day of the year where I give in to the urge for a pastry, rewarding myself for another 12 months of slog, some two decades and a bit after I was supposed to have retired. In the memorable summer of 1989, perhaps carried away by the fact I'd finally started shaving in the spring, I promised my mum that within five years, a novel I was never to complete would have made me enough money for me never to have to write another word again. My youthful effrontery looks even more ridiculous when I reveal that I made this vow, for that is what it was, just months into what would eventually total 11 years sleeping in a fold-up bed. Looking back at all the friends I grew up with, normal kids from normal families who had their own bedrooms with normal beds in normal homes, not one of them were making such cocky promises. What on earth was I thinking? Where did this overconfidence come from when I didn't even have a normal bed? My mum, to her credit, hid her scepticism well, and it's likely that I inherited my default poker face from her. I was never one for the types of championship-level cakes offered by the high street chains. The ice buns, scones, jam donuts and the like just did nothing for me, and I've been even less disposed to the muffins and brownies that have become so popular since the turn of the millennium. Once I left my teens, I lost whatever sweet tooth I had, but I recall that during the infrequent but long-when-they-happened childhood summer holidays in Spain, the pastries and cakes available there were on a completely different level. Had I grown up in the land of my parents, it's very likely my chubby period of 1984 to 1989 would have lasted longer. In more recent years, that sweet tooth of old has returned to an extent. I don't know if this is an age thing or simply down to a craving for sugar in the late afternoons to fend off the post-lunch slump caused by the German budget supermarket cereal I'm addicted to, 
Or it might be down to the fact that every day in the cafe, sitting in the kind of place that just didn't exist in South London when I was a kid, I am these days exposed to the pastries that would seduce me on those golden halcyon Andalusian holidays. Whatever it is, today I give myself to the pastry. Mindful it's Christmas and figuring it wouldn't do for me to be arriving here with my customary vacant facial expression. Just before coming here, I worked on enlivening my face by watching YouTube videos of skin shaving biopsies. A keen amateur dermatologist, it's an interest, well these days an obsession would be more accurate, that was triggered at a very early age when I discovered a medical book my dad had on diseases of the skin. Having pretty much exhausted available images of skin conditions and cutaneous growths on the internet over the last decade, I've had to start trawling YouTube now to find stuff that's new to me. Had my dad lived to have the internet in his bedsit, I've no doubt he, like me, would have been surfing the same dermatology sites and watching these same videos. When I watch these videos, I've noticed that my face can become unusually animated, particularly when making my way through the oeuvre of the likes of Dr. Sandra Lee, aka Dr. Pimple Popper, and of course the Tobro, the Montreal-based YouTube foot specialist sensation whose channel I discovered back in the summer. The Beard, the waiter who arrived earlier this year and who curiously maintained a massive hipster beard throughout the summer heatwave, but now that winter is here has significantly scaled back the face furniture, shakes my hand as I sit down. Over the summer, the Beard had made a concerted effort to get us beyond the small talk stage. This eventually met with some success owing to his admirable persistence. Despite this small breakthrough, our exchanges continue to revolve around the weather. My preoccupation with the weather is probably the most British thing about me, and I've become a natural outlet for the sad suffering waiter, who when I ask him how he's doing, is prone to gesturing dramatically towards the street as if to say, come on my friend, look at this English weather, how do you expect me to be? The fact that his shirt sleeves are rolled up suggests to me that it's not so much the cold that bothers the beard, more that the drab visual of a British winter reinforces for him just how far he is from his Portuguese homeland. The rolled up sleeves mean that in the last few weeks I've noticed a lesion coming through on his right forearm. It looks like an actinic keratosis to me, an area of crusty scaly skin which, if left untreated, can turn into skin cancer. If he hasn't already, he should get it checked out. To my self-taught eye, the lesion's appearance has altered over the last few weeks. While tempted to tell him of my dermatological observation, I figure it's probably not my place to suggest he see his doctor. How do you explain to someone that while you're not a dermatologist, you spend several hours a day watching dermatology videos and have over the last 10 years acquired enough knowledge to be sufficiently concerned for him? I just can't see how I can, and instead keep quiet, sitting on this potentially deadly knowledge, knowing that if a few months from now the beard disappears and I find out his absence is related to the growth, I'll have to live with that. These days I only write Christmas cards to family and any close friends of the long hours I continue to put into my writing haven't cost me. The litmus test of the Christmas card for me when you're contemplating writing one to someone new for the first time is simply this. Is that person still going to be in your life the following Christmas? If the answer is no, 
as it often has been with me, I don't give the card. You shouldn't be going through the motions with a Christmas card. The recipient should mean something to you. You don't want to come across that Christmas card a year or two later if you're a hoarder, as I am, and on opening it have no idea who the sender was. Christmas cards, like smiles, shouldn't be given away cheaply. Though I haven't actually sent any cards this year, that doesn't mean I haven't written any. For the last 19 Christmases, I've had to write them for my aunt, Spanish Carnu, and this Christmas has been no different. With Spanish Carnu having just turned 80, at least officially, the slack admin in post-Civil War Spain means we can't be certain of her real age, and now outliving many of her friends, there are less cards to write these days, but she still has enough friends for me to lose several hours in her Stockwell flat writing them, a chaotic evening that never fails to set my jaw in a clench. For years I've been trying to persuade her to get an address book so that she can have all her contacts in one place, but I'm resigned now to the address book never happening. Instead, as with the run-up to every Christmas, Spanish Carnu once more presented me with names and addresses written on the back of torn envelope flaps, matched to the cards those individuals were getting, and I worked from those. Historically, the most problematic card I have to write every year is the one to Scylla, an English woman who married a local Spaniard who for three decades owned and ran South London's best Spanish restaurant, Rebatos, on South Lambeth Road, now a new trendy whippersnapper cafe full of hipsters happy to pay stupid money for coffee if it means they have somewhere to charge their phone. Rebatos preceded the cafe by more than a decade, opening in 1984, the dawn of my five-year chubby period, and I would argue was the best Spanish restaurant southwest London has had, the quality of its food far superior to a couple of more popular rivals further south in long gentrified Clapham. I always remember writing this card because I was never absolutely certain Scylla's name was actually Scylla. I would just write it as my aunt pronounced it, my nagging doubt fueled by her pronunciation varying from one Christmas to the next, much like mine often did with latte. For years I would veer from latte to latte, which incidentally is the one most of the staff go with, except Phil Collins, who rather curiously says lat, a strange pronunciation matched, I should say, by me in an episode during the first series of the Cafe Chronicles. It was, in fact, only since 2014 that I determined I'd stick with one version and settled for latte. Likewise with Scylla. I opted for Scylla because it was the version Spanish Carnu kept coming back to most Christmases. Last Christmas, however, my suspicions that Scylla wasn't actually called Scylla were confirmed when I saw a car to my aunt and uncle from a Sheila. I checked this with Spanish Carnu. Yes, esta es Scylla, said my aunt. Yes, this is Scylla. For the sake of consistency, I thought it best this year to again address Sheila's car to Scylla, my thinking being that were we to actually go with her correct name after all these years, Sheila might justifiably think it took them nearly 20 years to realise my real name. Of course, it may be every year Sheila reads the card addressed to Scylla and gets as riled as I do when people call me David, but I'm hoping that instead she might see my aunt's ongoing struggle with English after 53 years in London as endearing, or is now so used to it and, like my aunt, losing friends now at such a rate that this is no longer as irritating as it once was. December can be a very long month for me as I avoid going to the doctors this time of year. 
As a lifelong hypochondriac, let me tell you, it's not easy for me to go a month without taking some often imagined ailment to my long-suffering doctor. Without these frequent visits to the surgery where I've been a patient my entire life and where history will record I made a good stab at running my dad close for the title of the surgery's most neurotic patient, the festive period can drag. The reason for avoiding the doctors in the run-up to Christmas is down to my dad's ridiculous generosity towards the surgery staff every year. Not only would he buy presents for our GP, despite their at times fractious 30-year relationship, but he'd also buy gifts for every single member of staff too. After my dad passed away, there was no way I was going to follow in his footsteps by continuing such largesse, especially when my bi-monthly hair salon appointments around that period, involving a head massage and the careful layering of my then long hair, were quite expensive. It's worth noting the surgery had also undergone a big expansion just before I lost my dad. And it's not that I want to downplay his generosity, but there are so many members of staff now, my dad would have had to stop the presence at some point. He probably would have tried to continue for a few more Christmases, but by the late noughties, with the Great Recession changing lives, he would have known it couldn't go on. In those early years without my dad, I recall at least two December appointments with my GP where I got the sense upon my arrival that the receptionists were expecting me to be continuing with this annual tradition established by my dad. I could feel their disappointment as I exited without giving them anything and imagine them chatting among themselves, contrasting my frugality with my dad's benevolence. I now look back at the curious unwrapped Christmas of 76 when none of the presents my sibling and I received were wrapped, explored elsewhere in my work, and I find myself wondering if this might have been down to my dad running out of money for wrapping paper after lavishing our GP and his staff with gifts in what would have been his early years in South London. Thankfully, with the exception of one long-serving receptionist, all the other staff from my dad's era have long moved on. It does, though, trouble me that this one surviving receptionist may still recall my dad's annual kindness and that whenever she regales the newest staff with back-in-the-day surgery tales, she'll mention my dad and throw in how unlike him I am when it comes to giving presents. I'll confess to being a little relieved that this Christmas, this one surviving receptionist from my dad's era is off work and likely to be for some time following a health scare. While this opened up the possibility that this Christmas I could have seen my doctor, I thought it best to stick with the no Christmas appointments plan that has served me so well over the years. After all, there's no telling how many staff she might have made aware of my dad's annual Father Christmas Act as she struggled to see how we went from generous to tight in just a single generation. The beard brings over my latte, the tall glass rattling on one of the newly acquired saucers that aren't quite big enough to accommodate the glasses. The rollout of these ill-judged saucers have complicated the tall glass delivery and robbed the staff of their grace of carriage, pushing them into Quasimodo-like deliveries as they try to make sure the glass doesn't fall off the saucer. Some of the staff, like the Gamorrean, the squat waiter built like a Gamorrean guard from Return of the Jedi, whose limited English makes my aunt and uncle with the 30 or so combined words of English they know look positively bilingual by comparison, are falling back on two-handed deliveries, either placing both hands on the saucer or keeping one on the saucer, the other on the glass. It's an ugly delivery visual, lacking the grace and finesse of the single-handed delivery. 
Several staff, even Phil Collins, whose delivery style four years on from her transfer from the kitchen to the cafe frontline, a move, remember, every bit as successful as her namesake switch from drummer to singer of Genesis following Peter Gabriel's departure, is normally so assured, have taken to place in a napkin under each glass to contain this spillage incurred on the glass's now torrid journey from the bar to a customer's table. It's incredible that no one worked this all out before the order for new sources was placed. I drop my sweetener into my latte, making sure I keep the sweetener dispenser that travels everywhere with me hidden in the palm of my hand and stir my coffee slowly, left-handed, to exude an air of mystery. My mood plummets with the arrival of an irregular here, the urinated man of Stockwell SW9. As is his custom, he sat outside with the smokers despite having long kicked the habit and in spite of the oxygen tank strapped to his back. A neighbour of my aunt's and, unfortunately, a fellow Spaniard, the urinating man of SW9, not to be confused, of course, with the still AWOL since 2013 urinating dwarf of SW8, whose disappearance from these parts coincided with a tenfold increase in the number of cranes, is back in London for the winter. A curious puffed-out chest gives him a sparrow-like appearance. His tiny stature bring into mind many of the Spanish guys from the old South London community I grew up in that my dad, unusually tall for a Spanish man of his generation, would tower over as he stopped and talked to them in the street. My dad would introduce me to them and by the age of 10 or 11, already taller than these guys, I'd be shaking their hands thinking, this can't be right. Now in his 80s, SW9 and his wife, who, like my aunt, favours the blonde perm so beloved of South London's Mediterranean women since 1979, divide their time between their home in Stockwell and one in northwest Spain. And like many of that old London Spanish community, SW9 and his wife love to spend Christmas in London. The British Christmas, along with fish and chips, is a massive thing for this generation of Spaniards. Christmas just isn't the same in Spain. Having spent one Christmas in Spain, I can say that eating Christmas dinner al fresco on a reasonably warm Christmas day was one of the strangest experiences of my life. Every bit as odd as seeing ex-Dallas star Linda Gray turn up in Hollyoaks. Now, if you know Stockwell, the chances are that any trails of urine you might have walked your way around in those mucky Lambeth streets are likely to have come from SW9 in possession of Stockwell's most undisciplined and capacious bladder. Even when he's within sight of his council block, the same block Spanish Carnu lives in, he'll still urinate on the street. Whenever I'm making my way to Spanish Carnu's or come in here, I always keep my eyes open for fear of running into him and having to give him my hand. According to his wife, well aware of his filthy habit, he has some unspecified condition, but be that as it may, as Spanish Carnu has remarked when she's seen him urinating against the wall some 30 metres from their block, what kind of condition prevents him from just going back indoors and catching the lift up to his flat to use his loo? No one quite drags out their coffees like SW9, and I'm speaking as a world-class nurser of hot beverages, but I bow down to this guy's coffee nursing. The coffee the beard has just taken out to him now will get cold quickly in this weather, but SW9 will still be sitting on that same drink a couple of hours from now. Between him and I, we're giving the Spanish a bad name. The cafe must think us a stingy race.
Over on the table to my left, a Portuguese regular, a pensioner, or at least someone who would have been classified as a pensioner before the retirement age got pushed up to 95, with an impressively full head of hair for a man of advanced years and a grey and well-clipped pencil-thin moustache that puts me in mind of David Niven, is FaceTime in a young Japanese woman. I'm doing my best to make sure my bouffant isn't in shot, but if it is, I tell myself that if this girl is actually on the other side of the world, she may just assume the bouffant is currently the trendiest men's hairstyle in the UK and will be clueless as to just how unfashionable my end-of-year hairstyle is. Meanwhile, old Twitter, the inseparable octogenarian couple, their relationship every bit as serene as my aunt and uncle's is tempestuous, have set up at the table in front of David Niven, with copies of The Times and The Guardian spread out in front of them, and as always are taking it in turn to read headlines to one another, breaking yesterday's news today. Mrs. Old Twitter's bouffant is the only hair in here today that height-wise rivals my own, while Mr. Old Twitter's white hair is pomade into place and he has his usual smart navy blue blazer on. If the cafe moved into merchandising and started producing action dolls of its staff and regulars, Mr. Old Twitter's action doll would come with this navy blue blazer. I always get the sense they're trying to outdo one another in terms of how big the story in their respective papers might be, but today they both remain oblivious to the story breaking behind them. Dirty old man flirts with 20-something Japanese girl on FaceTime. There are times when I think old Twitter with their physical newspapers have it right. I mean, do we really need 24-hour rolling news channels? Isn't this just another distraction? There are days when I deliberately avoid all the news, make for the cafe around 11, old Twitter's usual arrival time, and just sit back and wait for them to break yesterday's news. From my table I can see umpteen cranes bestriding the Nine Elms skyline. Every time you think the cranes might be done after a decade of frenzy demolishing and building, another building disappears and a new Lego-like construction begins rising in its place. I'm sure there was a time when buildings were demolished and the plot of land on which they'd stood remained empty for a while, keeping locals guessing as to what might be coming. But this rebooted Nine Elms doesn't hang around. Like someone not observing a decent amount of time before embarking on a new relationship as soon as their old one is done, these new towers emerge with indecent haste. The one thing that has remained a constant in SW8 has been the cafe, the most important place in my life for almost two decades now, but it's been a time of change here too. One mid-November morning, I was extremely unsettled to read a sign on their door saying they would be closed for six days towards the end of the month for works, in inverted commas. That immediately set alarm bells ringing. What exactly did they mean by works? Did they mean simply a tweak, a minor sprucing up, or was this going to be an expensive reboot, the cafe's first since the month-long closure of the spring of 2004, as they tried to compete with the chain cafes and glossy indies now snapping at their heels? Were the late owner's children now a triumvirate of leaders steering the cafe through these uncertain early years following the owner's death, looking to take their mother's creation and turn it into something else, pricier, less community-orientated? Or were they doing it up to put on the market? I had so many concerns. I had identified an alternative cafe to help get me through the six days the cafe would be closed, one I knew reasonably well. 
This backup cafe, which does the best hot chocolate I've ever tasted, has gone through several incarnations this decade. It's never been a serious threat to the cafe supremacy around here, held back by its location, access from one end of South Lambeth Road via a poorly lit cut-through that has long had a reputation as something of a mugger's paradise. Walking through there at night can be as precarious as sleeping with a 1970s electric blanket. The backup cafe's new Portuguese owner is something of a Keith Floyd character in that he gets sozzled on the job and has a rather aggressive demeanour too, standing over you at your table as you order, his belly hanging over his trousers, his arms at his side and his fingers twitching in agitated fashion like a cowboy poised to reach for his pistol in a shootout. During the refit, Keith Floyd got rid of the old pool table to accommodate a brilliant deli in the back and converted the main cafe area into something quite welcoming with big wooden tables and comfortable chairs soon drawing in the Portuguese community from the surrounding estates. Rather shrewdly of me, I thought, I put in a couple of cameos while my cafe was still open so that Keith Floyd's cafe couldn't with any certainty point to me being one of the cafe refugees flocking there during the cafe's temporary closure. And even after the cafe reopened, I still put in a couple more appearances that same week. I was determined that no one at the Keith Floyd cafe would note a disappearance as sudden as my appearance. All the while through the cafe's closure, I fretted about what the cafe would look like when it reopened, and so it was with real trepidation that in the final days of November, I returned for its reopening. Approaching it from the other side of the road, I didn't glance at it until the last possible moment, all the while promising myself that whatever side I was confronted with, I'd do my best to deal with it. Right away, I was encouraged to see the old awning, yellowed from the millions of cigarettes smoked under it over the last 20 years, remained in place, still sagging. In the alfresco area, where a bunch of smokers huddled in the cold, there was a pile of still unopened large boxes, and a couple of workmen were still drilling away outside, putting the finishing touches to works which had obviously not been completed within the tight six-day time frame they'd given themselves. Stepping inside, I made sure I didn't look into my favoured corner right away, again delaying my glance for as long as possible. My big fear at that point was whether my long-standing corner spot by the loos had survived the refit. I wasn't thinking about any possible price rises at that stage. I was just relieved to see my corner was still there. This place really wouldn't be the same for me if this spot had been done away with. Heavier, bigger wooden seats had been introduced, perhaps taking into account that the average Lambeth backside, as a result of the borough's voracious appetite for fried chicken, is likely to be bigger than any rear ends found outside of this transpontine community. The chairs are more comfortable too. I always got the sense here that their chairs were deliberately uncomfortable to discourage solitary regulars like me from dragging out their lattes and overstaying their welcome. A similar ploy is in place at Spanish Carnus, where my uncle, like me something of a misanthrope, is happy to have a hugely uncomfortable sofa because it means visitors rarely stay long, except me. There are new wooden tables too, dark brown, thicker, sturdier, the wobble of old which regularly had me jamming a folded napkin under one of the table legs, for now at least is a thing of the past. Meanwhile, the walls are now painted a gunmetal grey rather than the beige of old, and a month on, I'm still adjusting to how dim the cafe looks now.
The new colour means the annoying little fruit flies that congregate in my corner, drawn in more by the odiferous loos than the food on offer, I suspect, are more difficult to spot now. But make no mistake, they're here. I can see one right now. Behind me, the swing saloon doors installed in the extensive 2004 refit, the cafe's previous refurbishment drawing a line under its golden age, have inexplicably survived the refit and are now painted white. I'd hoped they would be removed altogether and a door, just like there was in the cafe's early years, would return in their place to serve as a more effective buffer between the cafe and the loos. I see this as a massive missed opportunity. Concluding my assessment of the lavatories here, the lock on the gents, the tomb-like cubicle that accommodates a urinal and bowl right next to each other, something I've never seen recreated anywhere else, had been busted in the summer and for a while remained unfixed, meaning whenever you went in there you had to keep a foot on the door, which meant the regulars here, whose aims have never been the straightest, flooded the cubicle floor more than usual. Before the refurbishment, a new lock was put in, a simple latch to draw across. That new lock is still there. The problem is that the outside sign from the old lock that says vacant when the cubicle is actually occupied remains fixed to the outside of the cubicle door and stuck on vacant, leading to anyone using the men's to assume the cubicle is, well, available. This means that you've always got guys trying the door now, unaware that, like the corpse of El Cid, mounted on his horse during the siege of Valencia to boost the morale of his troops, the old sign on the cubicle door is purely ceremonial now. For the record, this refit hasn't led to any price rises this side of Christmas, though I'm sure that'll change come the spring. Mil canciones Nos vestimos elegantes Pa la 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 Recordamos años antes Pa la 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 David Nevin, his steamy face timing with his young lady friend born in the 90s now over, has joined a couple of male 60-something friends at the bar, one of whom is wearing triple denim, a denim jacket, denim shirt and faded jeans, like it's the summer of 86, a scarf the only concession he's making to winter. His companion, meanwhile, sporting a striking snow-white beard, is tackling what looks to be a two-man eclair. Some of the pastries here are really massive and is evidently happy to talk while masticating. Long-time regulars Mr and Mrs Chinfisher arrive just in time to nab their favourite table, vacated by David Niven just a few moments ago. A middle-aged olive-skinned Portuguese couple who both have dimpled chins caused by the failure of the lower jawbone to completely fuse together at its centre point and who, as a result of their union, inevitably pass the cleft chin onto their child, which they must have known there was a chance of doing. The fishers greet several Portuguese regulars as they make their way over to this corner. Mrs Fisher leads on helloing me, followed by her husband. While helloing Mrs Fisher back, I give Mr Fisher the, all right... I like to vary my greeting, so it doesn't look like I'm just going through the motions. Hello, followed by, all right, sounds much better than back-to-back hellos, don't you think? Either way, it's a greeting that at the start of this year, I wouldn't have thought possible. As the Fisher sit down, Mr Fisher removes his coat to reveal a Christmas jumper. 
feeling like I need to acknowledge the jumper, and Mr Fisher's brief glance at me suggests he's expecting the acknowledgement. I begin an incline of my head, only to lose my nerve and abandon the incline midway through. It might look to Mr Fisher as if I now have a twitch. As always, Mr Fisher sits facing me so he can glance up at the big TV screen fixed high up on the wall above the entrance to the loos. Gamarian collects Niven's coffee cup from the Fisher's table and greets them in Portuguese, pulling his notebook out of his back pocket to take their orders. Gamarian's latest new colleague rolled up in the early autumn. A man, early 30s I'm guessing, but he could pass for older, but I think that's simply because he's sporting a mullet that ages him. While it's far from rare to see a mullet on a Mediterranean male, its strawberry blonde hue is unusual for someone hailing from that part of the world, making him stand out among his peers, much like the great Mexican fighter Saul Canelo Alvarez's cinnamon-coloured hair marks him out as distinctive among his people. The rest of the mullet's look is as outdated as the hair, with this new waiter favouring the open-necked shirt look complete with medallion nestling in a thick nest of flame-coloured chest hair. I've seen one or two customers picking out what I can only assume to be chest hair from the surface of their lattes delivered by the mullet, then shooting a look in his direction as he returns to the bar, oblivious to his molten into customers' coffees. If he persists with the open-necked shirt, it might be an idea to get him to wear a hairnet converted to hang from his chest. The increased risk of finding a hair in your coffee if it's delivered by the mullet mars the coffee drinking experience somewhat and is akin to having a kebab, the ultimate Russian roulette of fast foods. I've long thought it unfortunate that one of the great artery hardening foods is made by men from one of the most hirsute countries in the world and whenever I find myself in a kebab shop it kills me to see a short-sleeved guy with a thick pelt of arm hair cutting off kebab slices off the skewer. I can never relax eating a kebab, always scrutinising every forkful of meat for any hair. There should be a law that these guys cover up their arms. As always happens in my early exchanges with new staff, the first week or two of dealing with a mullet saw him automatically bring me a menu, unaware that I lived my life with what Hemingway, recalling his early years in Paris in a movable feast, called Great Economy. By November, the mullet knew me well enough to just bring the latte right over. There was no more fannying about with menus. His tall glass delivery style is somewhat odd, always seeing him leave the glass right on the top right-hand corner of the table, my left. It's easily the worst poor tall glass placement of any of the staff, but even more worrying is that his double-handed delivery sees one hand gripping the rim of the glass rather than its neck. Keeping a close eye on these unhygienic deliveries, I usually tear a tiny scrap of post-it note, which I position on the part of the top of the glass I'm as sure as I can be that he hasn't handled, turning the post-it note side of the glass towards me so no one can see it, so I can be certain that's where I need to drink from. This means the handle is usually on the other side of the glass, leaving me with a very uncouth handling style of my own that sees me bringing the glass up to my lips by the neck rather than the handle. Not before checking the latte for chest hair, I should add. Once or twice this method has backfired badly and the scrap of post-it note has ended up getting stuck to my lips as I sip my coffee. Gamarian returns to the fishers' table carrying over a tray with two coffees and two custard tarts. The fishers thank him in Portuguese and as Gamarian returns to the bar with a tray, I try to get his attention so I can order a second latte and a pastry. He pretends not to hear me. 
Mr. Fisher wastes no time in biting into his custard tart. He's an accomplished masticator, one of the cafe's best, able to chew and converse at the same time with anybody, in Portuguese or in what is very good English. And he never makes it seem like he's chewing any differently to how he would at home. That's a real skill. However, eating a pastel de nata is quite tricky, not to mention potentially messy. And even Mr. Fisher, as consummate a masticator as he is, can't fend off the inevitable gurns eating a custard tart draws out of your face. Mrs. Fisher, too, begins pulling the custard tart facials as soon as she takes her first bite. Their respective chin fishers accentuate their gurning. I suppose when you've been together for a couple of decades as they have, it doesn't matter what kind of faces you pull in front of one another while eating. Meantime, at the bar, Mr. Two-Manor Claire is finally nearing the end of his leviathan shoe pastry, and it appears no one has pointed out that he has cream up near his nostril. I'm not sure what kind of shoe pastry eating technique this guy has to get cream up by his nostril. Over by the retractable doors, Argentina 78, after several flat whites, puts his book into an old-looking rucksack, comes over, shakes my hand, and gives me a Merry Christmas. I return the festive greeting, and as he heads to the bar to settle his bill, I think back to Christmas 2010, when Argentina 78 and I first spoke here. By then, I'd been seeing Argentina in here for some time, perhaps as long as six or seven years. I'd noticed him right away because I was struck by certain physical similarities that reminded me of my dad. I vividly remember thinking that from the moment I first saw him. His dark skin means he could easily pass for an Iberian, and back then he had a fuller head of hair, always keeping it long at the back, much like my dad whose lifelong mullet would fall in and out of fashion during his 30 and a bit years in London. Whenever Argentina 78 gets on the Sagres or Superbock beer, his personality is transformed and he becomes quite the excitable raconteur, jumping into any conversation that might be going on in the cafe, no matter how far away he might be sat from the actual discussion. I'm more wary of the drunk raconteurs than I am of the natural raconteurs as the sozzled ones, unaccustomed to feeling so confident and outgoing, and almost overwhelmed at feeling so bold, have a tendency to be over-familiar with you. There are times when Argentina 78 will stand up and walk over to whichever table's chatter has caught his attention and hover, usually without being invited to join the chat, before crowbarring his way into the exchange. I was always alert to his unerring ability to do this, and whenever he was about, I'd studiously avoid catching his eye. When loquacious, he's quite voluble too, another thing that put me off talking to him. I'm not big on loud talkers. Thankfully, my default unfriendly face meant I was able to successfully stave off any attempts Argentina would make from time to time to engage with me. He'd pass my toilet table on his way to the gents and occasionally crane his neck dramatically to look at what I might be working on or reading and make some remark to which I'd just smile, but I wouldn't go beyond the smile because I knew that if I did, it would open the door to something bigger. Argentina's appetite for small shorts in the summer, the kind of shorts footballers stopped wearing by 1992. Unfortunately, another similarity he shares with my dad worried me as much as anything, because I figured if we ever got a regular salutation off the ground, with small talk established, summer exchanges with him in his tiny shorts was going to be a problem for me, given I place a high value on maintaining a low-key presence. 
I mean, if you were to walk past such a spectacle, the man in tiny shorts would stay in your mind. But if you're like me, I think you would also recall the person that appears happy to engage with someone wearing such outrageously small shorts. By the start of this long, little, heavy decade, I was still succeeding at keeping Argentina's overtures at bay, but that all changed in Christmas 2010 when I spent a long night at this table. I was wearing an old jumper that had been very fashionable in the winter of 2004 when zip-up jumpers with these zips positioned to the side of the neck were the in thing. By Christmas 2010, the jumper just looked odd, and when zipped up, given the zip's curious location, turning my head proved quite difficult. I rarely travelled light around that period as I was living in a hotel. It may have called itself a hotel, but I would say it was more of a bed and breakfast, and I was paranoid about having my most precious possession stolen by the maids. So with a peculiar and dated jumper and loads of bags under the table and on the spare chair, it might have been apparent I wasn't winning at life that night. And I placed what by then for me was a rare order for a big meal. Signor Volatile, the little waiter with the severe crew cut from which he has never veered in his 12 years here, took my order that night. In his early years in the cafe, Volatile wasn't keen on me, but that was okay, because the little man with the old school ink on the forearms that he'd never bothered to have coloured in didn't seem to like anyone. The relationship would reach its nadir in the spring of 2011, when as I walked to the cafe, hearing a sash window being opened on South Lambeth Road, I instinctively looked up to see Volatile topless at a first floor window, lighting a cigarette, a woman in her underwear on the bed behind him. Our eyes locked for a moment, and it took us years to come back from that. It was his fault. Who opens a window in their underwear on a main road? What irked me that Christmas night was that I recall SW8's then angriest man pulling an unnecessarily dramatic facial when I asked for the main menu, as opposed to the sandwich and snacks menu, an arched eyebrow coming perilously close to leaving his face. He might have thought me thrifty, but he had no idea the hotel I'd been holed up in for the second half of that year was setting me back an obscene amount of money, and that that evening, to celebrate my final night there, I was treating myself to a cooked meal. Had the roles been reversed, even knowing he was deviating from his customary frugal order, I wouldn't have pulled that face. I was here for something like five hours that night, trying to think my way through some significant obstacles. Argentina 78 was in with his wife. The pair sat right opposite me, blitzing their way through the beers. After looking over at me a few times, glances I was unable to avoid owing to my head being made immobile by my side-zip jumper, and with the drink bolstering his confidence, Argentina began chatting to me. Coming over and reaching for my hand, he officially introduced both himself and his wife just as she was exiting the loose. Forced to shake her bone-dry hand, I figured it didn't matter, given the difficult circumstances that night. Maybe I needed the distraction of the conversation Argentina 78 dragged me into. We discussed some of the local history and the cafe's previous incarnation during my childhood as a junk shop, with his wife older than me and having grown up in the area, telling me what SW8 was like in the mid-60s when Spanish Carnu and my mum lived just a couple of roads away from the cafe. I turned down their offer of a drink, concerned that with there being two of them and both of them clearly fond of a drink and just one of me, if standing each other drinks became a regular thing, financially, it was going to hurt me more than them. 
My big concern that evening was what would happen on my next visit to the cafe when I saw Argentina and his wife, because in what was by then my ninth Christmas in the cafe, that was actually the first ever exchange I'd been involved with any regular that went beyond the small talk, and I really wanted to keep the cafe as some place where I could quietly get on with my work. I knew I needed to shut this down as best I could. By the time of the unusual heatwave of October 2011, when inevitably Argentina 78's tiny shorts were on show once more during that bizarre sweltering autumn, I was relieved to have successfully distanced myself from the short shorts wearing regular. These days we say hello as we've done today, occasionally there's some small talk, but having seen the tiny shorts every summer since 2010, I limit any interactions with him to that. It was an unexpected New Year's Day 2015 greeting from arguably the cafe's hardest regular that finally broke through my glacial exterior and changed the cafe forever for me. I was making my way here when this big white guy, a bit older than me, always shaven-headed, and a former football hooligan who looked like a football hooligan and with the number 90 mysteriously tattooed on the back of his neck, which I would much later learn was the year he was in Belfast with the British Army, was coming out of the cafe and casually tossed a Happy New Year my way. Of course, that might be expected in normal society, but as you may now be grasping, I am not normal when it comes to greetings. I'd been seeing Belfast in the cafe right since I first came here a year on from my third nose job. In my first 10 years here, Belfast would be in the cafe with his ex-wife and their three young kids. And until 2007 and the smoking ban coming in, he and his wife both chain-smoked all the way through my third to fifth noses of what was an intense rhinoplasty-heavy period for me. And in all that time, through all those noses, Belfast and I never once came close to speaking to one another. Over time, it became obvious to me a year or so before his unexpected New Year's Day greeting that he'd separated from his wife. She'd suddenly stopped coming here and it was looking like this had become his bolt hole. While the estranged wife hung on to the kids, Belfast was allowed to keep the cafe. That doesn't strike me as such a bad deal. About a week after that New Year's Day greeting, I ran into Belfast again. This time I was leaving the cafe and Belfast was outside in a dark suit, smoking and having one of his espressos. We shook hands. He had a formidable handshake, but I was pleased that I was able to hold my own as my hand got swallowed up by his big paws. I remarked how smart he looked and he told me he was on his way to a job interview. From that day on, the handshake and greeting were established. I'd see Belfast and the cafe every day hanging about with Eden Hazard, the Algerian guy with whom I'd had a spectacularly bad handshake back in the summer, covered in the opening episode of the Cafe Chronicles, and another Algerian guy, older than the pair, who within six months and a dozen conversations of being introduced to me would ask me if I wanted to go halves with him on buying a house. The answer was no. While a young Italian guy with a great quiff and early adopter in these parts of the hipster beard completed what was an unlikely quartet. Every morning when Belfast came in, he would hug his trio of pals. Given they were seeing one another every morning, I thought the hugging excessive. Those guys were embracing each other as if they hadn't seen one another in 20 years. The backslapping audio was deafening. Desperate not to be drawn into the high-profile hugging, I always remained seated at my toilet table whenever Belfast made his entrance and had him settle for a firm handshake every morning. 
I was self-conscious in those early greeting days, and I figured that those that had been seeing me in here for years without talking to anyone would note that all of a sudden I had this handshake thing going on with Belfast, who, in addition to being its hardest regular, was also one of the cafe's most popular characters, certainly its most beloved Englishman. Everyone knows Belfast. Some mornings he'd help the veteran waitress bring in multiple packs of four pints of full-fat milk from the shops. He could be a gentleman. He was a gentleman. A gentleman with a naughty past. I have no doubt that it was because of Belfast that other regulars began to make their own advances to engage me. But I also can't dismiss the fact that having spent 13 months wearing a late-in-life orthodontic brace to straightened teeth that I'd begun grinding as the Great Recession stressed me out, a part of me wanted that engagement so I could road test the new smile and justify to myself the ridiculous cost of the brace with which at today's prices I could have bought 2,173 lattes. Once I'd been admitted into the cafe's handshaking and greeting carousel, there were three people, really, long-standing regulars, who I felt I needed to get a salutation off the ground with. Future me, also on Belfast's handshaking circuit in the mornings, was one of them. The 70-something pensioner, always in a brown suit in those early days, had first started appearing in the cafe in the final months of 2010, when he looked as beleaguered as I did during the close of that year. I'd never seen him before. Always alone, just as I was, I feared I was glimpsing what my future might look like if I made it to his age. As much as I wanted to, for years I was never able to get a hello off the ground with the old man I feared becoming. It was definitely me at fault, as over the next five years I'd see future me chatting to pretty much everybody in the cafe. I didn't regard myself as an unfriendly person. I just didn't know how to be friendly. Eventually... Towards Christmas 2015, we at last began talking, with me forcing the long, elusive salutation over the line. I can't remember the specifics, except that the urge to finally speak to him had been growing for weeks, and with Christmas on its way, I wanted to build up enough of a familiarity with him to be able to give him the Merry Christmas, so it didn't shock him when I did. There had been one disastrous attempt on my part when I walked to the cafe one morning. I saw him making his way back home from his daily coffee and toast and hellowed him, only to get nothing back. In the end, knowing he liked to read the sports supplements, I specifically bought The Guardian, and as I left the cafe one morning, I asked if he wanted the sports pages. He did. That got us up and running. These days, I'm pleased to report future me and I get along great. Occasionally sharing a table, I learned I couldn't have been more wrong about him. His social life puts mine to shame. We talk about football, he's a season ticket holder at a big London club, and we talk too about his love of films and jazz. It turns out too that I was working in the same place as he was back in the 90s as he closed in on his retirement just as it was beginning to dawn on me that I would not be retiring in my early 20s. The toughest greeting of all, however more difficult than I ever anticipated it would be to get off the ground, was to be with the fishers who've been coming here as long, if not longer, than I have. Up until this year, I'd never even exchanged so much as a nod with them. Since the owner's passing several years ago, her children have made sure the cafe no longer ignores events such as Halloween, and worse still, Valentine's Day. The last two Valentine's Days have seen the cafe go particularly cheesy, and this year saw me having to force through a rare smile for Phil Collins' benefit to show I wasn't entirely without humour, 
when, shortly after the cafe opened that morning, she jokingly gave me a heart-shaped chocolate wrapped in red foil, along with one each for Mr and Mrs Fisher. That shared moment of jocularity, an extremely rare interaction with the Fishers, albeit via a third party, was critical in helping me make the breakthrough greeting with them some months later. It was at that moment, dying inside as I looked at the heart-shaped chocolate, knowing I didn't really have the conversational skills to convincingly make light of the moment, that I determined to break the non-greeting. We needed it. Over the years, both myself and the Fishers have usually been the cafe's first customers of the day. Phil Collins will pull the shutter up and let us all into the cafe by 7.30, half an hour before the cafe officially opens. With the Fishers usually getting here just before me, I knew that the onus on getting this greeting off the ground was going to be on me as I walked in. It was a month or so after Valentine's that I finally broke my greeting duck. That morning, psyching myself up as I neared the cafe, I just told myself that once I got this greeting out of the way, every other debut greeting in what was left of my life would be far easier. I promised myself as soon as I'd given them my morning, I'd do my best not to look at them for fear I might see them arch their eyebrows in the same overdramatic manner as Signor Volatile when I placed my surprise meal order back in Christmas 2010. Of course, there's no doubt they were surprised, shocked even, but the Fishers very quickly recovered to come back with their own morning. That debut greeting had finally happened, and I was proud that I had led on it. What continues to elude us has been the goodbye, which I think is complicated by the fact that Mr Fisher leaves the cafe for work some time before Mrs Fisher. With Mr Fisher always giving Mrs Fisher a kiss before he exits, I don't feel I can lead on the goodbye, because then it would be apparent that I know he's going and that I've seen them kissing. I have enough about me to act oblivious to the kissing, despite the significant audio of that moment, though occasionally I do steal a glance just because I'm curious to see what two incomplete jaws look like when coming together. Because Mr Fisher and myself never got the goodbye off the ground, I felt that meant that I couldn't give Mrs Fisher the goodbye. Imagine if I did and that fact emerged at mealtime in their house. Mr Fisher might wonder why his wife was getting the exit greeting when he wasn't and might question the motive behind that. The Iberian male can be a very fiery and jealous man. The beard brings over my second latte and what is their last custard croissant, half of which looks cartoon flattened. Enjoy, the beard says. The proximity of his right forearm afforded me another glimpse of his legion. As I drop my sweetener into my latte, it's my great misfortune that SW9 chooses this moment to make the first of what I anticipate will be several trips to the loo over the course of his one coffee here. I hold off on the enigmatic left-handed latte stirring. Sitting by the loo's means I can't avoid him. He sees me as he walks towards the swing saloon doors. I keep my left hand on my tall glass and my right I hide under the table so I don't have to give him either hand. He places a fleeting hand on my shoulder and says hello before spectacularly crashing through the swing saloon doors, taking off some of the new paintwork with the oxygen tank. I don't delude myself that his hand was clean, although it's only a 15-minute walk from his and my aunt's tower block to the cafe, 25 with the oxygen tank on his back, I know there's no way he made it here without having a little tinkle on some street corner. I make a mental note to put this jumper straight in the wash basket when I get home. 
The oxygen tank that he carries around like some hump has been an intermittent presence on his back over the last four or five years, reappearing since his winter return to London. I've taken the approach that the tank isn't something I should bring up because he hasn't mentioned it, but I do find not acknowledging it awkward. It's a bit like running into someone in the street and they're with their partner, but they won't introduce you to them. I checked my approach with my uncle recently, as keen to avoid this uncouth Spaniard as I am, and he agreed. Don't mention the tank if he doesn't bring it up. At the end of last month, I ran into the urinating man at the doctor's for what would be my last appointment of the year. Once more, I didn't acknowledge the tank's presence. We small-talked, asking each other what we were there for. Now, for me, the etiquette with any such encounter with someone you run into at the doctor's is you aren't expected to be specific about why you're there, unless it's someone you know well. I was a little sketchy, more so because I hadn't yet nailed down which imagined issues I was going to run past the GP. SW9 wasn't, though, telling me candidly, too candidly, through his wheezing, that he was there to get some calluses removed by the podiatrist. He even pointed to the part of his foot where the calluses were, lifting a shoe and actually touching its sole with a finger to point out exactly where on the foot these calluses were. It was all I could do not to grimace as I saw the already no doubt unwashed finger make contact with the underside of a shoe that walks through some of South London's muckiest streets. I hear the latch on the cubicle door turn and within an instant SW9 is out, walking past the taps with his usual blatant disregard for water and hand wash as he once again clatters his way through the swing doors, stripping yet more paint off them with the tank. He places a hand on my shoulder once more, this time his right one, and this time he keeps it there for longer. He asks how I am, what I'm doing for Christmas, and then gives me an update on his calluses. The fact he has two homes suggests money is no issue for the man, and I'm tempted to recommend he make a trip to Toronto where the Tobro would finally resolve the issue. After completing the callous update, SW9 returns to his seat outside and his almost certain empty cup of coffee, yet to be collected. Old Twitter now covering the financial news in their separate papers, order more coffees from the beard. Frustratingly for me, Mr Old Twitter spots the lesion on the beard's forearm and advises him he ought to get it looked at. The beard, slightly self-conscious, assures Mr Old Twitter he will while the old man points to his own face, as if to suggest he had something similar removed once. I'm disappointed now it wasn't me to raise this with the beard, but I tell myself that if he'd taken it to his doctor and been told it was nothing to worry about, I would have felt foolish. On the other hand, any satisfaction I might have got had I been accurate with my diagnosis would have been marred by the fact the beard would be facing an uncertain time with his health. The fishers, their custard tarts and coffees finished, get up and make for the bar. They both give me the Merry Christmas, rolling their R's brilliantly. I force through a smile and Merry Christmas them back. Meanwhile, Mr Old Twitter is now holding the beard's arm and getting a closer look at the lesion as I slice up my underwhelming-looking pastry. That could have been me simultaneously impressing and putting the fear of God into the beard with my dermatological knowledge. I'm disappointed. And this is where I must leave you. I don't like to eat and talk at the same time. We don't know each other well, I'm feeling self-conscious. 
I might start over chewing, I'm on the mic, you might hear some lip smacking, and that wouldn't be an accurate reflection of the careful masticator that I am. Let's do this again soon. Merry Christmas. The Café Chronicles Bumper Christmas Annual 2018 was written and presented by Daniel Ruiz Tizon. For more of Daniel's work, please visit danielruizthizon.com and you can follow him on Twitter at 1607 Westeg.